Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about the government's recently announced mini-budget, what it means for our customers and clients, and how it impacts UK investors. With Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, Olivia Gleeson, UK Government Relations Expert, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. This time we're looking to cover the latest mini budget of the UK, which has had a pretty turbulent market reaction. So I'm pleased to have Olivia and Will to cover all of this with us. Olivia, let's get started with you. What are the main tenets of the package that the new Chancellor announced this morning? Sure. So dubbed the mini budget, we've obviously just heard the government's first fiscal statement. It was delivered by the new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, and he described this as a new approach for a new era. And it, you know, true to say, it was a bold package and a big moment. So what did we see announced? Well, there was a lot on tax, as you'd expect under this new administration. We had a commitment to keep corporation tax at 19%. Remember, it was due to rise under Sunak's previous announcements. And likewise, we saw a scrapping in the planned 1.25% rise in national insurance contributions, which was another pledge from the previous government. We also saw a raft of other personal tax measures, including the abolition of the 45% additional tax rate from April 2023, a cut to the basic rate of income tax to 19% from April 23, and cuts to stamp duty, particularly for first-time buyers. And all of this is, of course, on top of that energy package of support that was also recently announced straying away from personal tax measures. I think the budget also contained a pretty strong signal of support for the city of London and financial services. We saw the banker's bonus cap to be scrapped and a scrapping of elements of the EU Solvency II rules to supposedly free up billions of pounds of investment, according to the new Chancellor. And I think, you know, Truss will certainly be hoping that her approach and these announcements will usher in a sort of new era of economic growth after decades of stagnation. And of course, hopefully deliver some good politics. So, Will, maybe I can turn to you. How have markets reacted to the announcement? Uh, well, Sarah, um, it's been a pretty sort of, it's been a pretty tumultuous day in markets, to be honest. Um, I would call the market reaction could be called breathtaking. I think you wouldn't be exaggerating. The perception amongst market participants, uh, I guess, trying to read and link up the market moves is that uh, the Chancellor has potentially added fuel to the fire with regards to inflation, in effect, kind of backing the Bank of England into a corner. So November is now priced um, at 100 basis points in terms of another rate hike. Uh, remember, we've just had a 50 basis point one now. Government borrowing costs have soared across uh, maturity. So the five-year interest rate, government interest rate is on track for the fastest uh, move higher ever, I think, or at least since the early 90s. Um, and meanwhile, sterling has uh, sterling dollar has plunged lower. Now, the mix is, you know, you've got rising borrowing costs, rising yields, tumbling currency. That's a pretty nasty message in many ways, suggesting that there is some loss of confidence in the UK. So it's not a very encouraging reaction from markets, I have to admit, but it is in, in, in amongst, you know, the context is of a, you know, of a pretty messy day uh, on markets anyway, but the UK really does stand out in terms of the treatment that's been meted out by uh, investors uh, at the moment. Maybe you could explain a bit more about the thinking behind this package of measures. Is it just a matter of appealing to the Conservative Party faithful? Yeah, of course. And I think there's a few, you know, interesting strands to unpick here. I think, you know, taking a step back for a second, I think the new Prime Minister Liz Truss and indeed her cabinet, including Kwasi Kwarteng, are conviction politicians. And I think they are 
willing to go against the grain of popular or public opinion to pursue their orthodoxy. You know, for example, you know, we've had the lifting of the cap on the bankers' bonuses just in this budget. Now, some governments might have been concerned about this type of move against the current economic backdrop, you know, particularly cost of living challenges. But I think what we're seeing with this government is, you know, they are willing, you know, they're not going to shy away from potentially controversial moves if they think it is the right economic or political thing to do. And I think the second thing I'd note is, you know, we're really seeing a, a doubling down uh, in, in this government's politics. You know, we heard a lot in the leadership campaign about Truss's vision for sort of low tax, high growth economy. And I think this budget is very much in that Reaganite mold. And of course, I think you hinted at it in the question you asked me, you know, we shouldn't forget that this agenda is in large part driven by the need to appeal to the Conservative Party core, including uh, MPs who have been pushing for the Conservatives to sort of return to their low tax credentials, so to speak. And I, I would expect many of these announcements to go down a storm uh, amongst the party faithful. And I think Finally, I'd probably say, look, you know, if you are thinking and looking at this budget, thinking, wow, that, that's a lot of cuts. I don't know how many times I've mentioned the word cuts in this uh, podcast. You know, I think it's also important to bear in mind the wider context in which the government is delivering this set of announcements. Now, not only do we have the extreme public pressure I was talking about in view of the cost of living challenges, and I've previously covered that in other podcasts. I think, you know, the strength of the Labour Party uh, is also an important factor that we shouldn't overlook here now. Labour have a currently a double-digit lead on the Conservatives in most polls. In fact, they've had that for a number of weeks and months now. So I think the government knows it's going to take a lot, for example, these, these types of announcements to try to overturn Labour's momentum. And there is only a pretty small window of opportunity before the die might properly be cast in terms of the public opinion of how they're doing. Well, I may regret this, but I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit about history and how that might help us here. I wondered, is there a historical justification for the perceived relationship between tax cuts and growth? And maybe if you could mention something about President Coolidge, who's come up quite a lot in this justification. It's a very complicated question, Sarah, so not very easy to answer. I'll start off with the President Coolidge bit. So for those who don't know, he was the 30th President of the United States. He was, as it goes, a huge supporter of women's suffrage, uh, but I guess his relevance to this debate, like you say, is that he was, you know, he's gone down in history as a small state uh, conservative who cut marginal taxes sharply in his time in office. And I really mean sharply. Uh, this coincided with boom time for the US economy until it didn't in 1929. However, that, that that's actually the 1929 bit is actually beside the point. We, we can't, I don't think that the, the Great Crash was and the depression that came afterwards is all sorts of other factors involved. But this, uh, his time in charge coincided with strong growth for the US economy, um, like I say. But the problem here is actually the automatic assumption that it was lower marginal tax rates, lower personal tax rates that was the cause of the growth that ensued. The reality of the 1920s uh, kind of US growth is that this period is extremely complicated. Uh, remember, this is a period when electrification really takes hold. Um, so although electricity was developed commercially in the late 19th century, most residents and commercial sort of activities did not electrify by 1910. You only really get the sort of accelerated development of high voltage power lines between 1920 and 1940-ish. Um, and this is when the structure of employment, factory systems and so on, they revolutionize. And that's where sort of productivity really surges in the US as a result. So th this doesn't even cover all the other important influences going on in that period. Remember, you know, they 
you know, they were recovering in this period from the great flu, their own kind of great pandemic. Uh, so you had a slump afterwards, of, you know, following the World War One and so on. So this is, you know, the rebound from a very different, economic, difficult economic period with all sorts of things going on. And the point I'm trying to get to, I guess, is that it's very difficult. This is the problem with history in many ways to extract stylized rules about what works and one, what doesn't from one period, uh, one quite specific period of history. There's just too much extraneous noise. This is, as you know, the same point we make with performance data. You can't just look at one year's performance data of a fund or us even and say, oh, they're good or bad. You need lots of data, uh, data points to be able to corroborate if there's any skill or whether it's worth paying for in the future and those kind of things. And I think that's very much the same case this time. Well, that makes sense. So how about, have you got a more modern example, maybe? Well, uh, probably not. But I mean, there's a, there's a couple of credible sort of studies, I guess. One looks at the US uh, alone over the 20th century, uh, where you see, as I've just described, massive changes in the marginal tax rate uh, waxing and waning over that time, but actually very little t- uh, change in the trend growth rate and actually no clear relationship between changes in the tax rate and changes in the growth rate, even when you lag the data to assume, you know, that tax changes take a while to embed. That one comes from William Gale of Brookings and what's his name, Andrew Samwick of the National Bureau of Economic Research. So quite credible sources. The It's called The Effects of Income Tax Changes on Economic Growth for anyone who wanted to look it up. The other one you and I spoke about the other day, Sarah, it comes from two LSE academics, looks at 18 rich world countries, OECD countries over the last 50 years and finds no meaningful effect of tax changes on either growth or unemployment. If you wanted to look up that, uh, that's David Hope and Julian Lindbergh. Sorry, that's just one. So a bit more current, but getting there. Getting there. And maybe moving on, is there not some logic between the size of state and economic growth? I kind of get the idea. I mean, it's intuitive, isn't it? So you get sort of profit-seeking, dynamic private sector versus lumbering Leviathan state. Surely the more economic resources you give to the former, the faster you will grow overall. So the idea that you shrink the state, minimize its um, its exposure, that sort of maximizes dynamism. It's, you know, the, the ability for the uh, the unfettered private sector to, to grow. But I mean, there's some problems with it. I mean, in a way, or it's not a sort of slam dunk. Uh, I mean, as the evidence suggests, perhaps risks misunderstanding the role of the state in innovation. So part of that is is about redistributing op- opportunity. So if you need to make the most of you know precious human capital in your economy, uh, you know the people that make it up, you need to make sure that you don't waste any of it in a way uh, by giving uh, one set of people have better chances at life, education and the rest than the other. If we assume that genius is evenly distributed, which we know is true, um, it doesn't cluster in the already rich or a particular uh, caste or race or anything. So therefore, you want to maximize your, you know, the, the ability to maximize your, your labor force. Also, don't underestimate the role of the state directly in innovation. So there's DARPA, you know, this famous US arm of the uh, of state. And if you look at sort of innovations ranging from US biotech to technology itself, you know, many of the innovations in the iPhones that we use to record this uh, podcast come from state, not sector. If you want to read more about that, there's a great book by Mariana Mazzucato. I'm just trying to look at my back bookshelf and it's called The Entrepreneurial State. So well worth a read if you want to have a look at that and challenge uh, any of the those ideas. But remember, you know, the private sector, and I think the logic here is that the private sector, 
in a way, it's the way that it's funded and incentivized. They don't want to companies, publicly owned companies, shareholder owned companies, they don't want to do lots of very risky innovation into areas that could actually turn out to be cul-de-sac. So the private sector is much better at kicking down open doors in a way, uh, in innovation terms. So the point from Mazzucato's book and other sort of uh, others who've written on this subject is that you need, to a certain extent, the state to do base innovation across a range of subjects to sort of open doors ajar and then profit-seeking enterprises can barge through and uh, and make money out of it. So, and it's not just the US that's tried this model, you know, obviously some of those kind of industrial policies in the post-war period of Korea and Taiwan are really, you know, amazingly successful at this front and directing uh, funding and energies into particular areas to be able to, to be able to allow the private sector and competition forces to play. It's a very tricky balance to achieve, but I don't think size is a very meaningful, meaningful metric when it comes to um, how good or bad a state is with regards to economy, it, it, it's quality. Now, size and quality can go together a little bit, but I, I think it's probably more spurious than not. So what can the UK do then? Well, I mean, it, I don't want to make it sound easy. Um, I don't think I don't think anyone could. I mean, I, I can't think of a more difficult pol- policy-making backdrop than the one facing uh, this current group. The difficult thing, I think, or the challenge for policymakers in countries where you know we keep them on a relatively short electoral leash is is finding ways of doing policy that is big enough and persistent enough to really make a difference i mean what i would say is that there's loads of you know the uk you know one of the many things one of the many things we can be very proud of is you know our university system and the academics we produce in certain certain subjects and economics is one where we are unbelievably overrepresented in the global top table of the you know the best and brightest economists and a lot of those focus on productivity so you know the the, the writings of Andy Haldane ex you know Bank of England uh, chief economist John Van Rienen Nicholas uh, Nicholas Bloom these are very very famous UK economists who have written a lot on the subjects of what can be done to help the UK out of this um, slump in productivity but I think you know their point I wouldn't want to summarise their points collectively, but a lot of the common factors you read in their um, points about the UK's productivity problem and what could be done at it, done about it, is the absence of sort of scale and persistence in terms of potential solutions to that problem, whether it be with regards to the education system and how we train and prepare our many treasured workers for you know the economy to come and the skill sets that are needed in this you know the, the ever-evolving economy to how you kind of redistribute opportunity and so on to make sure that you're making the most of those uh, those people and not just letting particular geographies and geographies and areas sort of dry out uh, in productivity terms there's a whole load of writing as well on the issue of management skills in the UK and things like that, about how uh, some areas of best practice don't seem to disseminate as quickly through the UK um, as they do in other economies. And that's the same with the technological frontier. So there's a lot. And, you know, there's always there's always reasons why some of this hasn't happened. Like I say, part of it is the kind of short leash of some democracies and ours is one of those uh, events are part of it i mean god look at the last 20 years there's been very few years without a crisis and much you know and that requires money and spending and distracts attention from other uh, longer term projects potentially so it's difficult you know there's no um, there's no easy answers to this so yeah but i would suggest reading those guys the people who really know what they're talking about rather than me but yes i guess we shall see and we hope that this works to sort of reignite the uk productivity story i, I guess my point here is that you know there's not much sort of strong evidence even if it we hope it works this time there's not strong evidence from history to ground it i guess 
Well, yeah, we do hope it works. But thank you for joining us today. And thanks, Olivia, as well, for coming on. Interesting discussion. And thank you, listeners. Um, I look forward to speaking with you all again soon for another Word on the Street. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation. All tax rules can change in future and their effects depend on your individual circumstances, which can also change. We don't offer personal tax advice. You should obtain this independently if you are unsure. Investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance.